Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 240, and today's guest is Bob Bennett, founder and CEO of Engage Smart. It's very rare for a company to make it to the public markets. It's even rarer to have the founder of the company as its CEO throughout the full life cycle to that IPO milestone. EngageSmart provides vertically tailored customer engagement software and integrated payment solutions. The company went public back in September of last year, and Bob had the honor of ringing the bell of the New York Stock Exchange as its CEO and founder on a day when the stock had priced above its initial range as a publicly traded company. However, this was not Bob's first company. He's a serial entrepreneur who was the founder of Microfridge, a company that created a refrigerator-freezer-microwave-appliance combo, which was built for college dorm rooms and motels. The company scaled to millions of dollars in revenue and an acquisition, but as you'll hear, Bob shares a very powerful lesson from his experience that led to his future success. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Bob's background growing up and the importance of having a chip on your shoulder, the full story of Microfridge and how they were able to create an innovative product in a very complex and competitive market, how he gained expertise in the payments industry and what led him down the path of starting Invoice Cloud, an early SaaS cloud company, scaling Invoice Cloud and acquiring other vertical solutions to the point of launching the overarching Engage Smart brand, advice on building a company's culture as it scales, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, it's hard to believe that we have over 200 episodes of the VentureFizz podcast. We have built up an amazing catalog of inspirational stories around building companies, and every episode includes lots of great advice to follow as well. If you haven't checked out our past interviews, go to VentureFizz.com podcast for the complete list. Oh, and one quick ask. Please share the VentureFizz podcast with your friends and colleagues in the industry. I appreciate all of your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Bob. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. I appreciate you taking the time and inviting me to, to be on the show. Uh, I, like this podcast is such a passion project of mine. I just love the entrepreneurial journey. And you've been on this journey a couple of times. And uh, when I heard what you did, I think with your first company, it just was like, wow, that's a cool story to tell. But what you've been doing for quite some time now is building a company from scratch that ultimately came to the point where you took it public. So it's not like you were brought in as the CEO to scale a company and go for the IPO. You built this company you know, from day one, which we're going to get into the weeds of that story. But Engage Smart went public in September like what what was that day like for you? Oh, it was amazing. It was surreal, humbling. I get it. say you know I, I really had to fight back tears because it was so lucky. I mean, amazing luck to be there in the first place. An ama- amazing team that that really got us there and just really you know great fortune and but but the the humbling part of it was, you know, the 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 COO, this guy named Michael, was next to me from the New York Stock Exchange. So the NYSE COO comes up to me and says, Bob, there's some really smart people that say there are four buildings in this country that define the United States. The White House, the Capitol Building, the Supreme Court, and the New York Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. He said, what do you think of that? And I said, I think you work for the New York Stock Exchange, Michael, but... <laughs> 
Yes, <laughs> with the red carpet treatment that you've given us, it feels awesome. It really, and it was really an amazing experience. Very, very posh, very high end. And then they said, you know, you need to say, say a few words to your, you know, the employees. We're live streaming this. And I said, well, nobody told me that I had to speak, but, you know, I'll, I'll wing it. Let's go. Just thank everybody. But it was, it was, it was really amazing ringing the bell. Uh, you know, and if you if you mess up ringing the bell, I mean, the bell has to be held for 10 seconds. Exactly. Ah, I didn't know that. OK, you take your finger off the bell in less than 10 seconds. All of those floor man- managers that are taking tickets and writing bids, they will boo you. <laughs> and they do boo you. There's right, some, get booed. some classic YouTubes on on people getting booed at the New York Stock Exchange for not ringing the bell. Right. So I was under pressure. <laughs> that's awesome yeah i did watch the the video it looks like he did it right everyone was clapping and you know sh- you know everyone was cheering it on it just seemed like it such a great accomplishment that coo was right next to me that new york stock exchange coo was right right on top of me and i think he was going to pull my hand off at the end <laughs> if i lingered any any longer so i i was under supervision it was a good thing that's awesome well let's rewind the clock so where did you grow up what were you like as a child so I, you know, I was I like the idiot that I am now. I'm still a child. Uh, I never grew up actually. I, I I was born in Western Massachusetts. Lived in Maine for a little while. Uh, you know, I'm one of uh, eight children, seven that survived. So you know, the typical uh, Irish Catholic you know family in Westwood, Massachusetts is where I went. Ended up going to school. You know, most of my school and and high school, public school. Uh, you know. Money was really tight. Uh, it actually did matter to me. I just said, you know, that if I can take money off the table here in the future by working hard and, and, and achieving certain financial goals, I'm going to do it. I mean, it was it was impactful that way. Uh, but you know, it was a great family. You know, lots of character, lots of uh, you know, four sisters, you know, three brothers, you know, you know, lots of tension, you know, uh, but also lots of opportunity to. Uh, you know, fight for food and, uh, and, and fight together, you know, as, as, as a family. So we learned a lot about growing up and, as, and a lot about teaming, really, in just a family, right? I mean, it's, you know, the advantages. So that, again, as I said, you know, I've been very fortunate. That is the first beginning of my good fortune is to actually being born into that family with brothers and sisters that were competitive and, you know, kind of amping me up to be a little bit competitive as well. So I think that, you know, that was all good. Now, where were you in the sibling? Like, were you like in the middle, the, the older? Yeah, I'm the oldest boy. So I've got an older sister. She's all, about a year and a almost two years older than me. And then, uh, then I was the oldest boy. And then they just went sort of alternated all the way through the pack. And uh, the, the gap from my older sister to my youngest sister, which are the bookends, of this family uh, is maybe 16 years. So there's a, there's a pretty big gap, but there's eight kids in there. So they ding, 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 right. ding, ding. Yeah, so yeah. you can't have, uh, you know, none of them are you know, twins or triplets or anything. So um, my, mother was, my mother was quite busy and my father was a school teacher. So okay. it, was a, it, was, it was not a uh, you know, silver spoon environment, if you will. You know, we, we really definitely, you know, we all were working early and, you know, mm-hmm. And, and paying for paying our way for college and things like that. So all good, healthy, uh, very healthy environment for for building a work ethic. Again, good fortune. Some yeah. would say, "Well, 
that's not as good. Wouldn't it be better if you had more money? I say, I don't think so. I mean, it's like, you know, it's good. Those memories and stories, I'm sure growing up, you can't replace stuff like that. I also think that, you know, getting a chip, you know, you know, people, you know, needing, you know, you need, we need some intrinsic motivation. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of successful people, not entrepreneurs, you know, musicians, you know, artists, people that achieve a certain level of, of success have found a chip somewhere. And exploring that, you know, you can, I think, take successful people yourself, probably, Keith, right? Do you have a chip? Did you have to overcome something at some point? I talk about the chip to my daughters who are in high school right now all the time. And I reference Tom Brady, who still has a chip on his shoulder, drafted 199. And that's still a chip that he holds on to this day. That uh, I've talked about, about writing a book. I'm sure I never will on this subject, but uh, and the, the title of the book is Find Your Chip. Because and just doing interviews with successful people in all walks of life, where you're literally describe they're describing what their chip is and why that motivated them, how that motivated them to be whatever they became. And it's not about money, it's about pride and success and, and feeling strong about what you do, happiness. Now, you went on to study at the University of Maine, I think, applied math and computer science, from what I gathered, and then you further pursued studies at Northeastern and engineering management. So how did you get your career started? What types of jobs did you first focus on? So when I first got out of the University of Maine, and I, I had some debt, so I wanted to get a, a job that paid enough. Uh, and again, I had that financial chip that I wanted to overcome. So uh, I got involved in an engineering firm called Factory Mutual. It was called Factory Mutual. Uh, at the at the time, now it's called FMI International, but it was a it was a insurance engineering firm that would inspect buildings and make sure that they were adequately you know, protected from a fire protection standpoint. So you think about sprinkler protection that build you see inside a building sometimes where you see exposed sprinklers, so that if a if there's a fire, the 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 sprinkler head pops open, water pours out of that. Well, you've got some large warehouses that have very hazardous materials that have sprinkler protection that has to you know, So you have to have the right water pressure, the right hydraulics, the right chemicals sometimes within that system and the right alarming and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a, there's a lot of engineering that goes on with making sure that those buildings are well protected. So I became a, a, fi, a you know applied math computer science major, kind of a little bit of a pivot into a fire protection and consultant. Uh, where I would go in and inspect buildings for the insurance companies that actually did cover underwrite those those insured uh, places. After a couple of years of that, which I liked it and it was well paying, I figured you know I'm it, the computer science stuff was going crazy in the world, and I said I'd better get back into what I studied. And so I took a job with AT and T Western Electric up in uh, North Andover, Massachusetts, and uh, became a software engineer. And the person that was selling the solution that I was engineering and be on, on the software team for, and we had a very, it was again, a good fortune to be working with Bell Labs and some really smart people. Uh, but that person that was selling it took another job. They needed somebody to pitch in and start selling. I knew the system. So I started going into their pitches to New England Telephone, uh, you know, New York Tel and so forth and started pitching that AT&T's platform for switched access remote test systems, system called SARTS. And then um, decided I really like sales, that got me into sales. 
And that was a skill that, you know, has stuck with me since then. I really started to develop a, you know, sort of a keen awareness about, about the value of being able to persuade people and started to sell and, you know, started to take it seriously, got involved with smaller companies to really prove that I could sell because, at AT&T at the time, it was a monopoly and you really didn't need to sell. You really just needed to show them how to push it through the paperwork and push it through the system because it was, you know, New England Tell, New York Bell, you know, Southern New England Tell, they were all owned by AT&T and so was Western Electric, which I worked for, so was Bell Labs. So it was a closed system. We just sold to each other at whatever price we wanted to sell it. It was it actually was a very efficient monopoly, if you will, but now it's completely, AT&T is a completely different company. And, you know, I, I think the Western Electric plant was, was a huge manufacturing facility and North Andover is now owned by Verizon, I believe. So uh, it all got split up and so forth. But but the key thing for me was, and, and before that, I had actually, uh, before college, I had run a marina and a campground. So I had basic biz- business building and some public facing selling going on even when I was in high school uh, that helped sort of lean me, start to lean me towards, you know, sort of public facing and selling. And that really, that I think that was really instrumental and core to my background. Okay. So want to talk to you about, I guess the first company that you founded, which when I heard the idea, I was just like, amazing, right? Very hard to build. So the micro fridge, right? So what was that? And what, How'd you come up with the idea? So microfridge, I was a sales exec for a computer company at the time. And my, my, I had stock options. Uh, the company had gone public. My stock options were underwater. I wasn't going to make any real equity there, any big money there. So I started thinking about a product that, uh, you know, I could sell in mass, right? That was, it was the computers that I was selling were really hard to sell. So I wanted to get something that was easy to sell, of course, that it could sell a lot of it and build something that was a decent size. Microfridge, a refrigerator, freezer, microwave oven combination for small space living, college dorms, hotels, military, and so forth was my idea. I was actually trying to come up with a, a, a solution to my problem, which was I was going home and ordering out Chinese or ordering out uh, you know, pizza or takeout somewhere you know, during the night. And I was saying, boy, it'd be nice if I could walk in and my food was ready for me. Microfridge, as it turned out, didn't really solve that problem exactly. But my original idea was an oven that was a refrigerator that I could program in the morning, put the food in, it stayed fresh during the day, program it or actuate it from a, a car phone, which this is way back. And the car phones were pretty early back then. This is like the 1980s. Anyway, I could actuate it and say, kick, you know, kick on. I want, I'm going to be home in a half an hour. I want that food ready. Uh, so that was the original idea, but rare, it's rare that your original ideas turn out to be what you actually end up doing. Microfridge was something that I came up with as I was iterating on that idea of the oven refrigerator and realized that, you know, an oven and refrigerator is not really that feasible in the same cavity. You get extreme temperature changes and, you know, lots of moisture and, you know, it's, it's just bad but a microwave and a refrigerator attached and where you shut the refrigerator off when the microwave is on, because I was calling colleges and colleges said, we don't allow microwaves. You know, we got refrigerators in almost all the rooms from rental companies or kids bring them from home. It says, if you put a microwave in there, they both turn on at the same time, makes the lights go out. That's, 
that's a hazard. Uh, you know, but we would like microwaves because they're better than having kids cook with Bunsen burners and, you know, flamethrowers and irons and, you know, right. and hot plates and all the other stuff that they're using. So we'd like microwaves, but it turns the lights off. And my, I'm thinking about this microfridge thing that's a refrigerator and a microwave in the same cavity. I'm like, well, geez, you know, either it's used as a microwave or it's used as a refrigerator, but never both at the same time. That was the light bulb moment that said, wait a minute, all I need to do is separate refrigerator, separate microwave, attach them, electrically shut one off when the other's on, mm -hmm. and I, they'll never draw a current at the same time. And I'm, I'm able to, to create that patent on that, believe it or not. And, mm -hmm. you know, 17 years of, of protection and, you know, it became a pretty big thing, I got like a $25 million company, sold the company to a publicly traded company nine years later. The big lesson for me actually with Microfridge was the sandbox that, that your total addressable market is really important. Mm -hmm. My, I could never see myself getting beyond 50 million. I built it towards like a $25 million company. It was growing at 20, 25% per year. So I could see getting it to 50, maybe a hundred million at tops by buying other companies or expanding the product line. But 100 million is, you know, I'm, I was, you know, 40 years old. I mean, I'm like, hey, I'm, I want to build something bigger than that. So uh, that the, the addressable market was just too small. So, and I also had venture capital involved. I had GE Capital, uh, you know, on the board. You know, they had put in money. Once you get institutional investors, you need, as you know well, you need a liquidity event at some point satisfy you know those that those that invested and in, and in, and in bet their money on you so uh so if, if the time was right after about nine years for a sale i was approached by a company called mac gray sold the company it was publicly traded and and moved on and it worked well for them worked well for me all right so what did you do next so after that i went down to washington dc i sat on a ceo roundtable with uh, you know, a, the primary owner of a company called MIC down in Arlington, Virginia, which was an IT services firm. And so it was doing implementation systems integration for you know, Oracle, you know, you, know, uh, you know, Oracle applications and you know, IBM WebSphere, lots of different technologies, very smart people, great group of people, decent sized company, you know, a, a lot of uh, project management, uh, you know, and, you know, and bringing talent on a lot of recruiting, you know, and it was, you know, sort of the internet, you know, boom time, right? So this is, a, this is 1998, 99, 2000, just before the bust, right? Mm -hmm. So I went down there, helped them pivot, you know, one of the, one of the firms that they were, had been working with and implementing software for had gone out of business. So there really was no new work there. So we needed to pivot the company and they were looking for a liquidity event. I was, I had just gone through this process and I had to pivot microfridge a couple of times. So I had experience, you know, overcoming stupidity, which is my own stupidity. And uh, they weren't stupid, they were smart, but they brought me in to help them pivot and also to find a liquidity event, which we did in about two years. And at that point, you know, um, I was looking for the next thing, ran into a, you know, uh, some friends and through my networking who had made an investment in a not, in a electronic payment company called Network One down in McLean, Virginia. So I joined forces with them to uh, to see if we could, you know, it was another situation where they needed a little pivot. 
uh, into positive cash flow and uh, driving growth to a liquidity event at some point. So it was a good opportunity for me. I was looking to get, and it was internet payment. So it was a lot of card not present, you know, think warehouses, produce companies, uh, but also also hospitality, uh, you know, restaurants. And so broad industries, but their, their technology was based on card not present. So lots of web stores and so forth. So a really nice time for me to pivot into something that's more technical, the internet and payments. And that's where I fell in love with the payments business. Yeah. So that was your entry point into payments, which was core to where you started to build EngageSmart. Yep. That's 2001 and a great team of people, too many people. So there were maybe 103 people in the company when I got there. Two months later, it was probably 72 people. You know, it was, you know, we, we, we sort of right-sized it, uh, became profitable very quickly with some pricing uh, leverage that we had in the marketplace and uh, merged in with some other smart people uh, that based in Nashville that, that we, we created a, a holding company, bought some other companies, made the, the, the group that, uh, that I was managing the sort of the base foundation of the company. So all the business would be, we had a really nice technology base around Cardinard present enterprise payments, enterprise uh, electronic checks, which called it enterprise ACH. So very strong payments engine, very, very easy to use, a gateway to lots of different processes if we wanted to, uh, you know, sort of link, link ourselves to a processor that's currently being used by, a, by a, a, a new customer or prospect. And, you know, built that up to a pretty big company and ended up selling that to uh, Sage Software in 2006, I believe, February of 2006. And then I stayed on, you know, so that was, you know, but built a direct sales force, did a lot of integrations with software companies like, you know, Blackbot and, you know, GE Centricity, which owned, you know, which purchased a company called IDX, which was in the enterprise healthcare space. So think teaching hospitals like Mass General, Duke uh, Medical, and, you know, those types of things. So, so they had a lot of large customers. We became the embedded payments piece in all of the software for all the point of sale of transactions across all these large hospital systems and then expanded that into nonprofits and lots of other niches where the software companies historically were all about software, not about payments. And we started to share a little revenue back with those software companies while we drove growth in payments and growth in adoption of electronic payments instead of dealing with paper checks and paper bills. Okay, so that kind of brings us up to the company that we've referenced a couple of times as Engage Smart, which is a brand that was created later. And we'll talk about that as well, but originally started out as Invoice Cloud. So what was the background story of you starting that company? Like what where did, what was the pain that you found that you're like, okay, there needs to be a company to build here? Yeah, so Invoice Cloud, you know, after I left uh, Sage Payments, uh, you know, I literally was, you know, frustrated paying a bill. I was paying at a utility bill. I also was, you know, I was paying, I was in bill payment mode and I was trying to do it all online because, you know, I'd become technical at that point. And I, and, you know, the utility bill was a real pain, but paying my American Express bill was actually a pleasure. Remembered my name, 
remembered my checking account number from the last time I had used it. I could schedule the payment. I could look at my past payments because I had something on the bill that I wanted to make sure I didn't pay for the previous month, wanted to make sure it wasn't a duplicate. So I was able to open up a previous bill. That was pretty interesting. That was pretty helpful. Uh, and I just thought, yo, boy, this utility bill is horrible, that experience. And the American Express bill is really, that's pretty good online payment experience. So it just occurred to me that, you know, and this is literally one month after I had left Sage, but I love the electronic payment business and want to kind of stay in that pit business. I thought that it would be an interesting if we could create, if I could find a group of technology folks to help create an, a flexible infrastructure that could be branded. So think about that customer portal that was the American Express-like experience, branded as any biller, and then partner with customer information systems that form and create bills so that I can get uploads of the bills when they're ready to be paid. And for everybody that I've got an email address for, I could send them a, an electronic mail notification and encourage them to go paperless, which will save the, the biller money and provide you know faster collections and more convenient for the customer because they can sign up for auto pay they can go paperless get rid of the clutter the, the number one reason that people actually forget to pay for, the number one reason people don't pay a bill or they're late is because they forget it's because yeah. they take an envelope and they stuff it in the, uh, the other stack of envelopes and then they sit and then they get covered with something else if they're like me uh, you know, like a book or something, and then you know, which you never, which I never open. So anyway, so the you know I'm eliminating a lot of that friction if I can get that done. Called a couple technology guys. They were they said no problem. We can do it probably six seven months. We'll do it in our sp spare time. They did. You know, literally. You know, uh, we were calling the company Integrated Invoicing Solutions. That was my name for it. So that tells you how ridiculously thick I am. That's a terrible name. But you know, I'm sure you use the acronym IIS invoice. I was using IIS, right? <laughs> and this is 2009. I think people need to know the context of the date. This is 2009. Exactly. It's, a, it's the fall of 2008, which is oh eight. Okay. So thousand. So interesting because in the fall of 2008, it's not that long ago, right? It's 13 right. years. Sorry, 13 years ago, right now. I'm thinking, okay, integrated invoicing solutions, it's descriptive, right? So I'm talking to him and I'm saying, we're going to partner with software companies. So I get a hold of a, you know, a guy named Edwin Miller, who was running a software company called Everest Software down in the mid-Atlantic. Down in, I was living in Northern Virginia at the time because I went down to help MIC and uh, met, with, met with Edwin and, and he said, oh my God, so you're storing the credit card numbers for auto pay and schedule payments. You're storing checking account numbers because software companies don't want to do that. That requires payment card industry compliance. And, you know, you know I mean, we don't want to, we, it, we, it breach opportunities. We don't want to do any of that. So, yeah, no, I said, we, we got all of that locked down. We, our technology guys have got decades of experience solving the security problems. We're, we're all set on that. He says, okay, so he said, this sounds, it sounds like a great cloud application. And I said, What's a cloud app? <laughs> what's cloud? Yeah. It really does. This is 2008. He says, so what's a cloud application? He says, oh, it's the internet. It's accessible by the internet. There's no on-premise software. It's not hosted. You know, you have a single instance. Everybody uses it. I said, yeah, that's what it is. It's a, it's a cloud application. So I'm driving home and I talked to my CTO, <clears throat> sorry, my CTO. And my CTO had been in technology for 20 years at that point. And I said, look, John, I'm thinking we changed the name. Instead of integrated invoicing solutions, we go with invoice cloud. Wow. 
what do you think? He says, he says, that's a great idea. Now he's my CTO and he says, but what's the cloud? <laughs> no joke. It's like, you gotta be kidding me. But that's, you know, that, you know, clouds were nimbus and cumulus at that time, right? They weren't, they weren't all about, you know, it was not the internet and accessibility. That's how quickly it has changed. Everything now is iCloud. And, you know, then Apple later came out. I was it. People were referring to invoice cloud as iCloud. Our customers were. And then Apple came out with iCloud. And I'm like, oh, I guess right. I, should have, I should have marked iCloud. Anyway, I, I wasn't going to battle, battle Apple. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a bad idea. Uh, yeah, because Amazon Web Services was starting to take shape, but wasn't obviously what it is now. So yeah, that's uh, that's a great, great story. So how did you get things going as far as hitting that product market fit, scaling, starting to really see the growth of Invoice Cloud? Yeah, the whole key here about you know entrepreneurial success, I think, is persistence, right? It never actually ends up happening the way you think it's going to. Uh, we made a, I made a mistake in the very beginning. I, I get, I did a couple of things right. I recruited a great founding team, and that team stayed together for a decade and just, you know, we 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 crushed it. But I didn't have a, I didn't have a specific industry or vertical to go after. We built a general electronic bill presentment. So you could see the bill, you could pay the bill and you could get customer communication from the, our platform. And you know the concept was we're, we will be the customer facing portal for these customer information systems that are typically legacy systems that send out bills. They, they create a bill file that goes to a print mail company that sends out bills to people and they pay bills with a paper check and send them back in. That was sort of the typical cadence at the time and still is the, the cadence for probably a third of the, of the bills that are being paid by utility, uh, to utilities or tax billers or insurance companies and so forth. So it's still a, a prevalent, it, it's, a, it's a prevalent opportunity for us, let's say. So um, we started out by going to, you know, we ended up meeting with a print mail company because we were frustrated with our own, my own inability to pay bills online, talked to our town, said, hey, you know, how do I go paperless? How do I pay online? They said, oh, if you want to go paperless, you got to talk to our print mail company, you know, Mark Altman. I said, okay, we'll, we'll talk to Mark. We did a partnership with, with Mark. He introduced us to his municipal customer. So 100, you know, roughly 100 uh, you know, billers, like towns in Massachusetts, like, you know, Hingham and Harwich are, are among our first customers. They're still customers, you know, uh, Westwood is a customer. And so we started getting introduced, city of Boston's a customer. We got introduced to these, to these prospects and they loved it, but they didn't have any money. So they weren't willing to pay anything. So we exchanged the software and the, you know, sort of the improvement in the customer service and customer experience for payments revenue, which was the same playbook that we had used in my prior life. So we were very comfortable with that. <clears throat> we knew it would work. We knew that the, the payments volume would increase and that we'd be able to, over time, get to a point where we get better than break even. So what we realized at the time, you know, what we realized about two or three months into it is the more payments, the more money, we need to do a better job of driving adoption. So we created this very um, sophisticated customer engagement layer. So it's not just a single email, email notification email notification saying, hey, your bill's ready to be paid. It's one when your bill's ready to be paid. It's another one if you haven't paid it in the first two weeks. It's another one three days before the due date. 
and you know, and we're getting real time balances. So we're only sending those reminders to people that still have a balance due. We're not going to send one and say, oh, if you've already paid, ignore this, because that's going to just cause some people to make a phone call to the builder, which is not going to be helpful for us or the, or them. So we added those types of features and then added things like, you know, your credit cards expiring in 60 days, you know, your electronic check rejected, or be a reminder, be sure and get electronic check, be, be sure to get the money in your account because your auto pay is going to hit in three days, all of those types of things. So pretty sophisticated 30 email templates built into our standard solution that drive, drove a lot of adoption. So we got good at the customer engagement and realized that we needed to, you know, take this domain knowledge and expand it to other verticals. So we started, uh, you know, we took money from Summit Partners in March of, uh, of or April of 2015 and started to buy other really nice best in class solutions like, you know, Donor Drive and the nonprofit space, HealthPay24 and Enterprise Healthcare, Simple Practice and Wellness, and then renamed the company Engage Smart and, and started to bring it towards a, uh, a, you know, a customer engagement with payments platform. Yeah, because over this time, it became the norm. So your timing was perfect for being early to market yet ripe for opportunity. It's not like there's entrepreneurs that are too early and they never see their idea through because they were too early to market where it's not ready for adoption. You're on the cusp of this is starting to already happen yet there wasn't you know, leveraging the cloud to do this, right? Perfect timing to start to see a company scale and get to where, where it got to. Yeah, so I think that the, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are a lot of things like the flywheel that we use to be successful, which is very simple, top talent. I mean, we hire A players. We're, we're hiring to, we're, we're, we're going to finish this year with about 250 new heads in our company. That's 40% growth in heads. A lot of them right here in Boston, but all across the country, a lot of them in LA. And we're constantly recruiting to get to bring in more A players because we're a high growth company. Uh, so so starts with top talent. But when we hire that talent, we we bring in people with domain expertise in the verticals we serve, like utilities, insurance companies, consumer finance companies, wellness verticals. Like when we wanted to move, simple practice was a behavioral health solution, best in class. But we wanted to broaden that to other wellness verticals like chiropractic, occupational therapy. So we hired, you know, Mike J, an occupational therapist to help us design the product to drive that deeply into, so that it really meets the needs. Or we, and we hired Julie Shiani to help, help us drive our invoice cloud product deeper into insurance because she's an insurance professional. So we hired the domain expertise and put a very, very finely tuned ear to the voice of the customer. So that's sort of talent, you know, uh, so so a player talent coupled with uh, domain expertise, voice of the customer, customer driven. They have, our roadmaps are designed basically by our customers. Then then we 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 have to make a a an absolute commitment to long term product leadership, right? I mean, product leadership is what drives growth. So. Uh, and if we don't obsolete ourselves, I mean, I wake up, you can look at me, I'm nervous, I'm, 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 I'm a wreck. I wake up every morning paranoid. I mean, we, we need to obsolete ourselves or somebody else is going to do it. And, and they're working on it. So a commitment to product leadership means you're constantly, constantly driving, you know, 
insurgent growth and, and, and insurgent innovation. Uh, and then, you know, efficient go-to-market strategy using partners to fill the top of our, our sales funnel makes very makes for very efficient sales for our enterprise side. And, you know, simple practice, the product is so good uh, for anybody in wellness, nutritionists, dietitians, uh, obviously, you know, behavioral health. We have over 120,000 uh, clinicians using this, this solution. Uh, the product literally sells itself. It's so well-priced, it is so efficient, and it takes everything from an online calendar with an appointment setting all the way through a collection, including the electronic health record, insurance claims management, you know, uh, billing, you know, it's, it's all built into this, this beautiful system that is great, for, easy for patients to use and very easy for clinicians to use because they didn't go to school to be entrepreneurs. They went to school to learn how to help people, really. So, you know, this is a big part of our mission at, at Engage Fire and Simple Practice and Donor Drive Help Pay 24 and Invoice Cloud, but it is to really be a benefit to the communities. And uh, Simple Practice does that in spades, as do all of our solutions. But uh, helping people, sort of helping people get well, uh, you know, one patient at a time. So it's a great solution, very popular. The word of mouth drives people, you know, people that use the system to tell their friends about it that are also clinicians to go sign up for a free trial. And they do at simplepractice.com. And the rest is history. A very large percentage of those free trials convert into paid customers. And it creates a flywheel because then we get, it's all word of mouth. Those, we get more mouths every month, more word of mouth, and it just keeps going. Now you mentioned some aggressive hiring goals. So is that across all the different portfolio companies or is that just engage smart as the mothership, if you will? Yeah. So we call them solutions. So, uh, you know, we, what we do for all of our solutions is drive digital self-service. What we do is we, 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 we eliminate that nuisance phone call. Can I set up an appointment? You have an online calendar, just go pick it, click it, and you'll get a calendar invite that you can drop right into your personal calendar for the invite. And you'll also get a reminder the day before. And for Invoice Cloud, we eliminate the, hey, did you get my payment? Or I didn't get my bill. Where's my paper bill? I didn't, you know, and, you know, all of that. So all of those nuisance calls, we drive digital self-service so that it gives our customers the ability to spend more time in their communities and with their, with, with, and grow, on initiatives that grow their businesses, right? So they're, they're, all, they're, all, driving, um, they're all driving growth. So our growth has been very strong. We grow with we grow with them. So so we we our our solutions that flywheel is exactly the same over all of them. And the talent, yeah, we're hiring in all of our solutions: nonprofits, you know, enterprise healthcare, simple practice, invoice cloud. It's nonstop. It's you know it's it's awesome because we're over eight hundred people now, and and growing. Uh, and you know, literally six years ago, I think we were around twenty eight people. Wow, that is crazy growth. So how, how do you think about like, like culture, right? How do you scale culture as a company scales? Culture is, you know, culture isn't, doesn't come from a single person, but culture does come from a philosophy. We actually use a servant-led philosophy where, you know, employees, happy employees are looking for three main things, right? They're looking, they want to know where the ship is going, they want to know how they're participating and helping to drive the ship to that destination. What is their purpose in the journey? And they want to make positive relationships. 
either with colleagues or with partners or with customers or vendors or whomever, but they want positive relationships. That what they, that's what they want. And the way that they measure a good day or a bad day is whether they make progress or have a setback. You know, that salesperson that was trying for three months to make the, an appointment with that key you know, uh, prospect and finally makes that appointment, that's a good day. That's an advancement, right? Cancellation of that appointment the next day by that person, that's a setback. So as managers, our job is to remove barriers for everybody above us. And we use an inverted org chart. So think about the normal org chart where you've got a CEO on the top and you've got, you know, the, the customer service reps are on the bottom, perhaps. Ours is the other way. Customers are on the top. Customer service reps that are working directly with those people are, are the highest in our organization. I am actually at the bottom of the organization, removing barriers for everybody above me. And it's really important for us not to just talk it. It's really important for us to walk it. And that is what we do here. All solutions, all of Engage Mark. Makes for a very, very fun and you know, immersive community and culture. Everybody, I mean, our we have we of course we're surveying custom, you know, our customers and our employees, but our employee net promoter scores are off the charts, you know, over 70 uh, as a as a company because people really do enjoy working here. And of course, we pay very attractive referral bonuses, but you know, we were getting people referring their colleagues and friends and to us for years, even before that. But uh, all, so many of our new employees come from referrals because from existing employees and from customers, actually, we hire a lot of customers, you know, and they, they want to retire from what they're doing in the, the insurance company or the utility or the municipality. You know, our, our, our doors are open, you know, the strong players, we, we love having them on our team. They, they know the business. They, they have the domain knowledge. They fit right into our flywheel beautifully. Yeah, the upside down org chart is definitely great leadership because if your people are not successful and if you're not working for those people to make them more successful, that in return, make your customers successful, it's uh, you're thinking the wrong way. And this is, I had a similar founder CEO talk about the same exact thing in a prior episode that it just, it, it, it's, it works and it's, uh, it's definitely the way to think about things. Yeah, I think it's, you know, otherwise you're, you, you're, 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 you're sort of pounding the table, demanding things, it feels like it just doesn't make sense. I mean, you don't and know that, when you, that culture is not going to fly in, the, in this day. Oh, like, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, in fact, you know, and we're, you know, it's a war on talent. I think we all know it, right? And, uh, and we feel like we're winning that war. We're, we're meeting our crewing schedules and we're meeting our, we're meeting our, our recruiting needs because, you know, we pay, you know, you can't hire A players without paying A compensation. So we pay A compensation, you know, we provide equity, uh, you know, where, where appropriate. Uh, and that was for everybody in the company, actually, before we went public. So, uh, you know, we're aggressive out there. Uh, and, you know, and that couple, couple with couple great compensation with, with a great place to work, a fun place to work. And flexibility, you know, we, we don't force anybody to go into any offices or anything because those are the table stakes today. I mean, you, you, you've got to, and it really, we were always remote. You know, our, our development team was, even I was in Boston and the corporate headquarters was in the Boston area, but our development team was in Brownsville, Texas from the beginning because it was people that I knew from my prior life that, that wanted to work, we wanted to work together. So we built the development team there. We've always had 
you know, and my CTO was in Virginia and my VP of marketing was in Charleston, South Carolina. Didn't matter. Ahead of its time of uh, thinking that way versus how companies need to think now due to the pandemic. Now, one thing that you have a lot of experience doing is, uh, you know, acquiring or selling companies. So uh, what advice would you have for other entrepreneurs that are thinking about uh, that type of scenario, either, you know, acquiring a company or perhaps selling their own? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's, it's a great question. I mean, I think that you got to look past the, the, the owners, first of all, because they're probably not going to be there. They probably, you know, they get a liquidity event and they, they want to be, they want to be off doing something else. Uh, somebody like me, I'm, I'm unhirable. I mean, you know, I, I, I like leading a company from the bottom, but I'm still leading the company. Um, and, you know, I don't, it's hard for me to work for anybody and be hard for an entrepreneur. So look past those folks and make sure that if you're, if you're, if you're committed to product leadership, like we are in all of our solutions, look to the IT team and the product team and make sure that you've got a team that's willing to stay, wants to stay, and is going to be able to help maintain that product leadership that you have to have for long-term success. So that's the first thing is look past the owners to the, the people that actually keep that product. You can bring in salespeople and so forth, but that domain knowledge around product and engineering, I think is really critical. We've been very fortunate to maintain and keep the, the, the teams that we brought on that, that, that serve those functions. Um, the second thing is, in my opinion, I wouldn't buy something that wasn't true SaaS. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, it, you know, we're, I'm completely spoiled, but the advantages you get from having true SaaS, single instance, multi-tenanted solutions, is you know just overwhelmingly compelling. I mean, you know, you know, you have to pay more for it, but it's it's worth more. And you know, then there's all kinds of economic questions and so forth. I mean, but the you know, we're a growth company, so I mean, if you're growing at you know forty percent, you don't want to buy something that's growing at ten percent. Uh, you know, and, unless you can do something, if you see a synergy where you can make it, you can help it grow, or it will help you continue to grow at forty percent beyond where you would have otherwise. But so, but I, I would think, you know, the two big things for me are really true SaaS and looking at, at the product leadership and, and engineering teams and making sure that they're, they're great. Now, there's been a lot of, uh, I guess, innovation and uh, a lot happening, a lot of capital invested in the whole FinTech industry. So where do you see the you know the payment space heading? Like like if, if you had a crystal ball, what, what are some of the predictions that you'd have? Well, I mean, it's a it's a growth business. I mean, we've got I mean, you know, it's you know, I don't know, thirty four percent of utility bills I think are still being paid for by paper checks. So you know, our our average customer, I think we've got around forty percent of the payments are coming through invoice cloud for 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 payments, right? Uh, now, 70 75% for simple practice. So it varies by market and convenience and ease of use and, and sort of the, the tendency and cadence of, uh, but, you know, if I, if I own a house, I might tend older. And if I tend to older, I might tend to pay checks with pay, pay bills with a paper check and send them. And that's what I've always done. And I, and I like paper, so I, I'm going to, I'm not going to go paperless, but those folks are, the, those folks over time are being replaced by, you know, the younger generation that actually doesn't use a checkbook and pays everything online and is, you know, very accustomed to it. And 
doesn't want to send paper checks. What, what's a paper check? Who's going to bother with that? And sign up for auto pay, set it and forget it. So that is the, that's what's coming along. So you know, we're, we're less, a little less than 40% penetration in our existing customers. So lots of upside there. Plus we're at less than 1% of our total $28 billion addressable market. That's our, that's our $28 billion US only domestic marketplace. And we are a domestic uh, opportunity. And we are at less than 1% of the share there. So with best solutions in each of our verticals, I mean, it's a no brainer for, for us to just continue to drive organic growth by putting the right, getting the sales force up and you know, keep adding to the sales force and, and leveraging those partnership opportunities to fill the top of funnel and keep driving growth. Now the tech scene in Boston has been uh, remarkable. I mean, Engage Smart goes public. Toast goes public. There's been a lot of companies going public via SPAC, you know, DraftKings and Symbotics going out. Tomorrow's another one that's going to be public and maybe will be public by the time this is published. So what's happening in the Boston tech scene? There's there's just so much activity. Well, I mean, certainly, certainly the educational institutions here and the uh, you know the entrepreneurial environment. Uh, ed education institutional institutions, but also the tech scene, it's always been strong. I mean, we go, go back to, you know, DEC, you know, Digital Equipment Corporation, that's a long time ago, Prime, you know, uh, Wang, Wang, you know, I mean, we, we've, we've been pioneers and then you get, you know, get MIT and Harvard and Boston University, Boston College, Northeastern has a, become a powerhouse in engineering. Uh, you know, and so, so many great, so many great colleges, the Uni University of Massachusetts system is fantastic. So all of those, and then, you know, even the, the, the schools, you know, Brown, you know, all of the schools around us, we, we have a over penetration of Ivies and, you know, in, in great schools that, that are feeding this ecosystem and it's dark a lot, you know, I mean, it's cold. <laughs> Let's get to work. work on something. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I'm not kidding. I mean, it's like, you know, I was just in LA for the weekend, man. It's like, I want to be outside all the time, you know, but I didn't want to be inside working. I want to be outside doing. So, I mean, we do have it in, I mean, it's not like Alaska, but we do have a lot of darkness. I mean, it's like, it's 425 and it's dark already here in Boston. So, uh, you know, I think that, I mean, the, the weather does play a role. I actually, this is going to sound crazy, but I actually think that, the underdog mentality of Boston being so, so bad in sports for so long ingrained in us that chip about being an underdog to New York and other places, you know, Silicon Valley, whatever, you know, they oh, they got the great weather, you know, they, New York's got the power. They're like, they're one of the largest countries if they were doing it by GDP. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's like Boston's kind of like that little, you know, orphan, Anyway, I think that we have a chip. I actually think it's, I think that, do you agree? You, you, you grew up in Boston. A thousand right? percent. Absolutely. Always looked at like Silicon Valley and, and New York and uh, always working harder to overcome. And uh, I think that pays off in spades as far as the mindset. I agree. I, I think that it is inherent in our approach and our mindset. And I think that, you know, attitude is, you know, we can, you know, we, we've had to persevere. I mean, we dealt with, you know, decades of losses with the Patriots and the Red Sox and, you know, the Celtics as well, but then the Celtics got really good. And then the Bruins, I mean, I grew up in the days of Bobby Orr and, you know, John Havlicek, Bill Russell, and, you know, these, you know, Bill Russell, my God, I mean, the guy, I think in 11 years had 10 championships and he was the coach 
and the center, right? I mean, he was yep. a player coach. I mean, and remarkable, you know, grit, right? So I think grit is part of our fabric here. So outside of work, what do you like to do when you have free time? Well, I played squash this morning at 6 a.m. with my friend, my friend Vikram. Uh, I think he gave me a little bit of a lesson, but I think maybe we split games. But he's he's younger. He's 20 years younger than me and much smarter, quicker and, you know, and better. Uh, but I still have some, you know, I don't know, treachery in me. So uh, but I love to play squash, exercise, spend time with my wife, my family. Uh, you know, we're, you know. We're, we're close knit, uh, had two children that got married, uh, this summer. It was, so, uh, that was a, that was a big deal. Uh, it's been, you know, but lots of, lots of competitive things. We love to play games and just have a good time. Very, very cool. How about you? Do you play, do you play squash, tennis? What do you do? I don't play squash. I used to play tennis. I haven't played tennis in a long time. I, I, I've, I've doubled down on golf because I just got finally tired of just being horrible. And I'm like, all right, I'm not that like, I'm not a great athlete, but I'm not that bad where I should be this bad at a game. And my kids are a little bit older now where I can escape for 18 holes and play. Uh, and I, you know, I work at it in the backyard type of thing. Cause I'm like, I'm done being horrible. So, you know, milestone one, let's get under 100. So I achieved that over the past two years and I'm not looking to be a scratch golfer. I just want to have fun and, and not embarrass myself. <laughs> I'm not always under a hundred. I'm occasionally under a hundred. I've been under 90 a couple of times, but never much, not, never much. 86 best. That was a nice short round that will never be repeated. I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah. I've had nine holes though. Yeah. 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 So that's what I've been working on. And I do like to play the guitar when I can, but obviously with uh, kids and, and the family, we, you know, spend a lot of time having fun on vacations and their sports uh, cause they're very active and playing field hockey and cross country. So uh, always, I did, always I did, busy. I did pick up the bass guitar in COVID. Did you? I picked up the bass guitar and I, I learned, I took piano lessons at the age of 50. Cool. And and uh, dropped it when I started this company because it was, I was all in. Uh, and in the pandemic, I picked the piano back up. So bass guitar and piano, I picked, I picked up. I mean, look, I, I never was good at either, I'm, you know, but I just started playing the bass in the last two years and or less than two years, but whenever COVID started and then, uh, and, and the piano, I wasn't good, but you know, I can, I can play a little bit. It's fun. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, you sit down at, at a party, people are like, wow, you could play, even though you don't consider yourself good. Other people from the outside would be like, wow. And yeah, if I wasn't playing golf, I'd be playing, you know, the guitar, you know, just like can't have the luxury of doing both. So. You, you grow or die and it does, age is not a factor. You, you We need to continue to, you know, to push ourselves in for sure, push yourself out of your comfort zone. That's what makes you, that's what makes the mind and the body believe that they need to keep growing when you keep stepping out of your comfort zone you grow so that's really my object languages pick up a language pick up an instrument start reading start writing start doing art swimming running whatever it doesn't matter it doesn't need to be intellectual it doesn't need to be physical just get out of your comfort zone yep i agree it's all good stuff well, Bob, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great stories as far as your entrepreneurial pursuits and all the great work you and the team at Engage Smart is doing. And of course, all the, the great advice. Thanks so much, Keith. It was really a pleasure. Enjoy the conversation and keep going with that golf game. 
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.